friends, Romans, countrymen, lend me your ears. What's up, y'all? It's the MC Lars Podcast. It is Monday, February 4th, 2019. This is episode 23. We have an amazing man on today, Samuel Salerno. Uh, Sam Salerno, or as I used to call him, Mr. Salerno, was my middle school English teacher. And he had a huge impact on me as a kid. He's one of those teachers who really... He showed me it was okay to be nerdy. That actually was cool to be nerdy. He showed me the majestic rock and roll powers of Rush when I was like mired in the, uh, you know, MTV sludge of Marilyn Manson and Nine Inch Nails, which are great bands, but that was kind of my world as a middle schooler. So we'll tell the story in the uh, podcast, but one day he's, we're talking about Sepultura and their album Roots and Pantera. And he's like, you should check out Rush. You might like them. I'm like, oh, okay. And he's like, yeah, I like the new album. I didn't really know much about Rush really at all, except the dude had a high voice. Then in homeroom, he comes in and puts a CD on my desk of Test for Echo. He goes, here you go. And just walks off like this magic boom. We did a, and we did a book reports. Uh, one of them was what you had the option to read Anthem by Ayn Rand, which was an uh, inspiration for some of Rush's songs. And uh, Mr. Salerno was like, you might like this because Rush wrote songs about this book. And I was like, okay, lit hop, right? Like being able to take a book and turn it into a song, like that was the seeds of this. So I owe Mr. Salerno a lot. I mean, he helped me believe in myself. He showed me it was cool to love music, cool to love nerdy music. And we've stayed friends over the years. I've seen him over the years. We catch up every once in a while. Uh, when I was home for the holidays, he came up to hang out with me at my parents' house, and we did this podcast. And uh, he's got a few books out. Um, his last few are called The New World, and then one called The Soul Collects Its World. And he reads a poem from it. And he's got some stuff on Amazon. I recommend you check it out. But for any of you who are in California, especially the Central Coast, which is a little bit south of San Francisco. On Sunday, February 10th, he's doing a reading at the uh, Old Capitol Books in Monterey. It's the Monterey Bay Poetry Consortium, which my dad is part of. So you'll get to meet two guests from the podcast. But I really recommend it. Um, The Facebook page, let's see, you can learn more about it on Facebook. I'll put the link in my, uh, I'll put the link in on Facebook in the description for this. But yeah, it starts at two o'clock and it's Old Capital Books, 559 Tyler Street, Monterey, California. Please go see my dude, Mr. Salerno. <laughs> so that's what's up. Um, thank you, Sam. This was a great episode. Oh, he also brought a book. He We didn't get to talk about it, but he showed me. It's this book of Getty Lee's bass collection, which is awesome. And uh, Sam plays bass in a really cool band uh, called The Transducers. And we're going to end this episode with a live recording of their original song, Lullaby, which was recorded at Poppy Hills Golf Course in Pebble Beach, which is near where I grew up. So really great to talk to Sam and really cool to like check in with a teacher and just reflect, tell him about the influence he had on me and talk about like his life and how he balances his creativity with being one of the most amazing dudes I've ever met. So shout out to you, Sam, Mr. Salerno. So uh, I want to talk about what's going on in the world of MC Lars. First of all, I want to shout out the Patreon supporters, some of the new ones. Isaac, who goes by the name Nice Jewish Artist. We did a song together. Shout out to Nathan. Shout out to Travis John. Thank you all for your support. They joined this last week. Some of my old supporters, Michael, Leslie, Simon. Thank you all. And um, I do a freestyle fr- on Friday. And this last Friday, I had a special thing where like, if you signed up during the freestyle or you messaged me as a Patreon supporter, you got a download of a rare album I made before Nothing to Fear, which was like the first CD I had for sale. So stuff like that. Um, Friday, I do it at noon East Coast time. So that's 9 a.m. California time, 5 p.m. UK time. But thankfully, they're archived. I do it concurrently on Twitch, YouTube Live, and Facebook. So 
keep your eyes peeled for the Freestyle Fridays. Last week I called a last week actually Mega Ran jumped on the Twitch chat and I called him. We talked about the album and then I called a fan and we talked about his life. So you never know what is going to happen. I am doing my regular releases. I just did a parody of uh, Butterfly Doors by Lil Pump. Samurai Bros is my version. So that's either coming out this week or next. I'm I'm doing the puppetry uh, for that. I'm taking a class at the YouTube Space in New York. I'm visiting out there and doing a class on Premiere. So shout out to the YouTube space. Like they have such great resources. Um, what else? We are, we've got the Infinite Jest songs coming out on Patreon. So be sure to check that out. And yeah, we've got a lot of great stuff coming up, but we don't need to get into right now. Let's talk, let's get into this interview with Mr. Salerno. Thank you, Sam, for being on the show and stick around after for the that fresh transducers track. I'm MC Lars. Thank y'all for listening. Peace. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to another episode of MC Lars Podcast. I'm here with a man who's had a huge impact on my life, and uh, it's really cool that he had time to be on the podcast today. Please give it up for Mr. Sam Salerno. Woo! Hey, hey Andrew. Good morning, Sam. How are you? I'm, I'm well. How are you? This is awesome that you came out to uh, my parents' house, where I had my gear set up, to be on the podcast, because I want. when I started this, I was like... Who's someone interesting who I can get? And I was really happy you were you had time to do this. So thank you. No, thank you for having me. It's great to see see the folks again and and you and and it's awesome to be here. I think we connected in 2010. Maybe we had coffee is the last time I saw you. Do you remember that like in Monterey? Um yeah, I mean I I've seen you also at the the New Year's shows and uh so and I think I've run into you a couple other times as well. It doesn't feel like 20 I've been out of high school 20 years honestly almost. Uh, it, it doesn't at all no you you look the same and and hopefully I look the same you but do, probably man. not you look the exact same and um you were saying you've been teaching this is your 27th year teaching yeah yeah it's been been a long long road um and I didn't know where it was going to go when I started it just uh started at the the middle school uh, at Stevenson and it just went from there and now I'm up at the high school so it's been been great. So I started. I think I started middle school in like '94. When did you start at Stevenson? Teaching? Yeah, right, right about then. '93. Well, I, I, uh, I subbed for uh, a woman who was on maternity leave, and then the following year, uh, they offered me a, a job uh, teaching fourth grade, mm. which was the toughest year teaching in my life. You know, because <laughs> the, the kids were great, but they were. They're, at that age, they're energy vampires, and I'd go home every night, and I'd be absolutely exhausted. Uh, but it was it was good tr- a good training ground because I, it was a self directed classroom, and I had to teach all the subjects. Mm. So uh, math and science suffered a little bit, probably, but uh, the literature and history was a was pretty good. What makes fourth grade particularly like energy vampire ish? Because they're so hyper. Or- um, yeah, I think, well, you're with them for the entire day mm. and, uh, and they're just so full of energy and it's, it's beautiful energy. It's great energy. You know, it's, it's, it's the neatest thing to be around them, but you just, at the, at the end of a day, you go home and you're like, oh my God, I, wow, I have no energy left. It's, it's been sucked out of me. 
So, um, but it was, it was a great experience. One of the things I always admired about you and still do is how you were able to keep your musician skills playing bass and you were releasing all these poetry books and doing readings and signings. And that was so cool to me to see someone who kind of had this DIY punk rock kind of approach, being able to create content and also, you know, have your quote unquote day job of, of teaching, but also balance it with your art. And that's kind of like a theme of this podcast is creative people who have found ways to just make the most of their time and not let the media industry dictate what kind of things they should create. And that, yeah. I want to talk about that. Well, I wonder, you know, I wonder if teaching has something to do with it. I mean, there, there are blocks of time that we get off, like, you know, I'm on Christmas break right now and, and that's going to be a great time for me to work on music and work on some writing ideas. Um, and we have more of that in the summer uh, as well. So I think that's been a, a, a big part of being able to, to have a full-time job and also uh, create some, some art. That's cool. Um, were you always writing poetry? Yeah. I, well, I, I started in high school and um, I had a wonderful teacher. His name was Chad Lincoln. Uh, and I often think of him as I teach my poetry classes now. I, 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 uh, sort of draw from his, uh, his tutelage. Um, and then I, I started writing in earnest in, in college at Pepperdine where, where I uh, did my undergraduate work and, uh, it just, just kept going from there. Um, and I, I've never really stopped. Um, I've had breaks where I, uh, like in the last couple of years, I haven't been doing too much writing, uh, with the passing of my mom and, you know, getting that all squared away and, and moving through that time and, and that passage. So, uh, but yeah, I just come, I keep coming back to it and it's a pendulum. I, I go back and forth between music and, and writing. So I'm in the, I'm in the music phase right now. You, what's your, your band? You have a band you play with or a few bands? Yeah. I've, uh, I'm working with a group called the transducers uh, right now. And, uh, we, we played a few gigs, um, this, this last year. Uh, and we, sort of all met doing musical theater, uh, working at, at, uh, this theater in Monterey. And we just, we played together for about a year on these shows like Rocky Horror and Cry Baby and these other musicals. And then we, one day we kind of looked at each other and said, well, Hey, why don't we, why don't we take this on out on the road or just be a band and, and play, play out. So we've been working on that and, uh, you know, we're still sort of, uh, in, in an incubation like stage. We're not fully out yet, but, uh, hopefully in the next year we'll, We'll uh, get some more gigs out there and, and play. That's kind of the best, right? Like when it's people who you respect, who who all want to play, and you're doing it not because you're trying to get signed or whatever. You're doing it because maybe you'll make some money, but really to be for the passion and the joy of of playing, right? That's like the best, I bet. Yeah, and it's it's they're just really nice people that I'm working with, and um, it, it, I think it helped the fact that we, we played together for a year before we even started doing this, this band project. Um, so we know each other very well. Um, and there's a cohesiveness there that, that we've already established. You know, you all have good chops, I guess. Well, we yeah. try. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. We try. Um, what's it like playing like for mu for musical theater? Because I imagine you rehearse and rehearse and you get really close. And at the end of a musical, you know, maybe you don't see the same actors again or. Right. It's yeah. very much like a mandala, you know, that you, you create this beautiful uh, moment in time and, and then you have to say goodbye to it. So it's a, it's an odd feeling at the end of a run. You're like, Oh, okay. Now what? Oh, well, I'll see you. Well, I don't know when I'll see you next. 
So yeah, it's a strange um, feeling. It's an intense amount of work and then you, you get through it and then it, it just, you, you wish it away or you say goodbye to it. So it's a tough, and tough then, process. Sometimes you start a band with your, with the people you play with. Right. right? So yeah. That's the next step, right? Yeah. Where did you grow up? I grew up here uh, on the Monterey Peninsula, uh, specifically in Carmel, Carmel Valley. Wow. Uh, yeah. Uh, lived at the mouth of the valley um, and then ultimately moved into town when I was a teenager. So, uh, and it, yeah, it was a wonderful, wonderful gr- growing up here. What was it like? Like, so in the, in the 80s and 90s, like, what was this place like? Well, it was, it was a lot quieter. That's for sure. Uh. Um, it always had um, some wealth to to it um but maybe not as much as it does now um it was a lot quieter it was probably a closer knit uh community um and there were a lot of people who were just um sort of middle class families uh who who just happened to have been here a long time so and i'd say probably around the mid 80s it really began to shift a little bit so now that now you have sort sort of more of a uh cosmopolitan jet set quality to the area that that wasn't there before was uh, was it like a lot of pickup trucks and more like people people were f- at ranchers and yeah, yeah. It, it was especially here in the valley um it, it just had a more rural feel to it what's that area they, that i've never been to but it's like the the famous part where the carmel river bends the, it's like the bucket or something like that yeah is that what it's called yeah that's uh, i mean it's i don't i don't even know if what's there now i don't know if it's been blocked or diverted but yeah a lot of a lot of kids used to go out there way back when and like just jump off rocks into the water or something like yeah that. Yeah, yeah it's just you know you probably go drink beer or whatever and, you know maybe smoke something you're not supposed to you know that sort of thing it was like the hang the hangout spot in the in the 80s and 90s. and even before i'd yeah. say i and i i, I don't know if pe- kids still go there today but you have to hike into it. i've never been but it's i've heard this fabled stories you know growing up here about that place did you have to hike in or was no, it like no, easy? no, it was, it was, it was just, uh, it was accessible. You just had to climb down into this kind of ravine or area. So yeah, it wasn't, it wasn't hard to get to. What was like the music culture in the Monterey Peninsula like back then? Was there one? Well, you know, growing up as, as a kid, I mean, it's, it's a interesting, my dad was a, a, a radio man and he owned Caramel radio station. So, um, there was, yeah, there was a there was a music scene. I, I sort of ebbs and flows. I mean, there there are years where there's a lot of great music out there, and then years where there's just not too much. And I think part of it has to do with with uh, what venues want to uh, give or uh, what's available uh, in in terms of places to play. Um, so I, I would say that there, you know, you had the jazz festival was always a big big deal, um, and uh, and there were some there were some rock stars and people that would come here, you know, and for single nights, sort of like what the Sunset Center does mm. now. Um, so it was it was it was there. I mean, I, I wouldn't say it was super vibrant, but it was there. And Dylan lived out here, didn't he? Briefly. Yeah, I, he did for a time. I think that's when he was uh, with Joan Baez. Um, I don't know how long they were here. It might have been only six months or a year. Um, but apparently he was here at one point. That's pretty cool. Yeah. I appreciate all this as I've gotten older and like the story of Hendrix burning his guitar at the Monterey Pop Festival. Yeah. Like all these 
being kind of close to San Francisco, you know, I, people say like, and I remember when I, I went to New Zealand and there's this place called Stewart Island, which was at the bottom. Mm-hmm. And I met someone there who worked, she was like a production manager for Cirque du Soleil. Oh. And she said, islands kind of have this deep wisdom because people come and they make a big impact on a small place. Like people come, like people, poets would come there, or scientists, and people would remember them. And that stuck with me because it seems like that's kind of like the Monterey Peninsula. The people who have been here, like Kerouac and Steinbeck and all these interesting people got inspired by the beauty of this place sure. and left a mark. And then the legacy lives on and people like you who are like Renaissance men who teach and are artists too. And and I really, having traveled a lot, I realized that there's no place in the world like Monterey, Carmel, Carmel Valley. Would you agree? Yeah, I well, I, I certainly. I mean, you could go back to the early 1900s where you had... You know, Robinson Jeffers was was here. Uh, Jack London spent a little bit of time here. It was sort of this uh, bohemian uh, artist colony uh, before it became, you know, what it is today. And so that mm. that spirit has been here for a long, long time. I think the the Chinese inhabitants here, who were here uh, a century ago, noted that this place has some kind of special energy to it. And I mean, I, not to get mystical, but I, I think there's some truth to that. It, it just is a really uh, special, intense, insular place that brings out uh, the best in, in people and the, and the artistry in, in people. Um, and it's no wonder that you have guys who have come here like Henry Miller. Uh, he lived out, out in Big Sur and, and all these other uh, writers and, and musicians as well. And like... Um... What there's that Chili Pepper song, Danny California, where he talks about driving down that highway one, you know. And Flea lives out; he has a house out in Big Sur. So uh, I didn't know that <laughs> he does. Yeah, we, you can <laughs> see him crazy. sometimes at the Monterey Airport. It's kind of strange, like, hey, there's Flea. <laughs> yeah, or like, um, gosh, seeing famous people. Like I remember we'd always, not always, but often see just Clint Eastwood getting his car washed or walking around Carmel, like. He's the, one of the luminaries that, oh, everyone has a Clint Eastwood story. you know? Right. Well, and he came here in the 50s and he's as local as, as it gets. So, I mean, he's he really uh, has blended into the scenery and landscape around here. And people leave him alone, which I guess he appreciates. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And he's he's a nice he's a nice guy. And he but uh, he uh, you're right. People give him a space because they just see him as just another person who lives here. You know? I'm sure it's the tourists who would bother him. Oh yeah, yeah. yeah. He's a lot of stories of you know people wanting his autograph and you know talking to him and stuff. And he's been mostly nice to them. So what? So you moved back here after? I'm sure. So you went to Pepperdine. Mm -hmm. How? What was that like? Um, You know, it's it's five and a half hours down down the the road, the coast. Um, So uh, it was it had some of the qualities of here because it's it's right on the coast. It's it's a conservative school. Um, it's near Malibu. It is, yeah, on it's the right. hill there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's beautiful, right? It's gorgeous. Yeah, yeah. very nice. Um, and it was it was a it was a time of flowering for me. I, I was you know I got into all these uh, books and all these ideas. It was it was fantastic. Um, I do wish, in hindsight, though, as the kids do at Stevenson now, they they go on these tours and trips. Um, it would have been nice to maybe explore other schools besides those in California. But back in 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 my day, 
um, we just didn't do that. We just kind of stayed in California and, and very few people went you know, out of state for, for college. And um, do you think your life would have been different if you had like gone to school like in on the East Coast or something? Or I mean, obviously it would have, but it seems like you were drawn back here for a reason. Right, right. now, yeah. And I, I don't, I think, um, I think, in some ways you're, you're meant to live the life that you were going to live. And so I, I don't look back and regret in that way. I just, uh, I just, it would have been interesting to, to have more options to see what else was out there. And, um, we, we tended to just stay here in the state. So not bad though. Not a no, bad place. No, not at all. No. I remember I was driving past that school going over, the mountain when I was living in LA, I was like, Oh, this campus is beautiful. Oh, the, and like beings like impressed by, yeah, just how, how it's imagine it's kind of like a idyllic place, but maybe a place where you're kind of like inured to the beauty or used to it. Right. Like right. living here, you're like, Oh, there's the ocean. That's just always there, you know? And I don't know. Well, I, you know, I never, I, uh, I never got tired of that. It's, it, it, you're right. It's very beautiful. And, uh, you know, every day you just, you're in awe. You're looking at, at this marvelous, uh, eye of the world as Jeffers puts it, you know, and, and it, it was, it was fantastic. It was a fun, fun and, and lovely time and place to be. When did you start playing bass and why bass as uh, opposed to other instruments? Yeah. Well, <laughs> I, I think, you know, the, the old cliche is that, uh, Hey, we don't have someone to play bass. You, you're the guy now. Um, um, I actually started on drums, and uh, oh wow yeah and i uh probably uh would have been nice to keep doing that um but um eventually i i just had a really dear friend who who was a guitar player and and we wanted to get something going and um he had a drummer lined up and so uh i just started playing the bass and uh really took off with that in in college you know started in 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 high school and then really got serious about it uh, in college and what were some of your um, bass influences? Um, well, definitely progressive rock players. Uh, Chris Squire of Yes was a big influence. Uh, Getty Lee, of course, was huge. And and Sting of The Police was was also an influence um, uh, just in the way that he conducted his band and, and with the singing aspect of it too. But those guys uh, were the ones that I sort of looked to. So that's kind of... Ca- cool that Stuart Copeland when he and Trey and Les Claypool started Oysterhead he was used to playing with the bass bassist front men I guess mm-hmm. I didn't realize that Sting was a bass player he was and, yeah. and he's a he's an incredible musician I mean it, uh, some of his uh, acoustic guitar work is is pretty good uh, and people when you'd never think of it and you think well he doesn't really stand out that much on on the bass but but he's a good solid bass player but he's he's an all around incredible musician. So, uh, I, I took, uh, took that to heart and I really appreciated the fact that he, uh, he could produce, um, and he was a great singer and that voice is so distinctive that, yeah, it just, uh, it's, it's incredible. And a great poet. He's written some great songs. Yeah. Yeah, for For sure. sure. For sure. Talking about progressive rock, a lot of people don't, might not realize that the band dream theater is named after a, a, a actual theater that was in Monterey. Yeah, um, Mike Portnoy's dad actually worked for my my dad at, at KRML, and I and Mike used to come out and spend the summers here. Um, and you know he was from New York, 
and his dad was living out here. And so, uh, Mike would come out and, you know, we, we spent uh, a lot of time together and wow. <laughs> yeah, he's a really, he's a really great, great dude. Um, but it, we sort of lost contact right around the time he, he was becoming a teenager. And that's the time where he was really starting to play drums a lot. And I remember even then, you know, I was like, wow, yeah, Mike, you can, you can really play this and these things. Um, but he was very modest about it. He, he didn't mm. talk a lot about it, but he was, he was good then. And, and now, now he's monstrous. Right. So they would go to that theater or he thought, thought, Oh, that's a cool name for a band. Yeah. He was looking for a name, uh, for the band. And I think it was his dad who suggested the, the dream theater, you know, why don't you name yourselves that? And they said, okay, yeah, that sounds good. And now it's, it's, it's been gone for a while, right? Did they tear it down or? Um, or is it still there? It's not there anymore. Yeah. Uh, the Dream Theater, I, I can't remember exactly when it closed. It might have been, maybe been 2000 or so, right around that time. Um, our, our The drummer in, in, in our band worked there for, for many years, and he, he thinks about it fondly. But we love that place. That was just a, a such a cool place to go watch a show. And the, I remember the seats were so big, and like it's mm-hmm. a really unique place. I remember we went there with uh, Mr. Jacobs, who was my advisor, sixth grade. Was yeah. that Michael Jacobs? Yeah. And we went on a, a advisee trip to the um, <laughs> Dream Theater, and that was the only time I went there. And then, then you know, getting into the band and like being completely amazed that it was named they named themselves after that place right (laughs) yeah it's great it's a great piece of uh uh, you know monterey lore you know that that uh and it's too bad that the place uh, isn't still there because it really was a fantastic theater and a part of uh, that area of monterey it's interesting coming back here seeing like pacific grove and and everything it changed it's changing a lot like new build there's always new buildings and it's all it's like but it all in a lot of ways it doesn't change you know what i mean it seems like it's it's got a weird balance like that. It does. I think maybe it's just partly because the area is not that big. Um, water is always an issue. That it's probably not not going to get built out too much more. I, I mean, I could be wrong about that, but but you're right. It seems like things do stay very much the same. You could walk down Carmel uh, any day, and it's it's almost like being there 30 years before. Yeah. And you've seen that you've seen the changes or seen the things that haven't changed, I guess, in your time here. Yeah, things have stayed uh, very much the same. It's just a lot more crowded, you know. Yeah, yeah, a lot more people. And traffic is increased. Would you say it has? Yeah, yeah. for sure. Um, as a poet, what are what? Who are some of your influences, like, as a po- in poetry? Uh, I'd say my number one influence is uh, William Butler Yeats, the Irish poet. Um, I've, I've spent a lot of time in Ireland in the last uh, few years uh, studying him. Um, and for me, he is the, the the benchmark. He is the one that if you're really serious about writing poetry, you want to aspire to to write as well as he does. But knowing that you're not going to do that, but but you know you got you have to aim high. So he uh, has been a big influence on me. Uh, Jeffers, of course, um, you know, being the local poet, uh, he was an influence. Um, and then just all the greats, Wallace Stevens um, and E.E. Uh, e. Cummings. He's been a big influence. Emily Dickinson. Um, so sort of draw from a lot of different writers. But Yates is the guy for me. What, what particularly do you like about Yates? Is like his meter or his... 
Um, to me, Yeats combines um, the artistry of of writing poetry um, with um, the with a philosophy um, and a progression. His, his as his life progressed, as his thinking progressed, his poetry also mirrored that. Um, and so he he starts out as this romantic. Uh, poet of the 19th century, and by the time he uh, passes in the late 1930s, he's uh, his his voice is very modern. Um, so there's this beautiful evolution. It, it, he he didn't fade. He got stronger and stronger as his life and his poetry went on uh, into this just culminating explosion of of beautiful uh, writing. So I I I liked that he was very spiritual. Um, incredibly spiritual, but whatever he believed, uh, it never, it never got in the way of, of his writing. Um, so just technically masterful, um, had a way of spinning words that were, it was just remarkable. Um, and his life was, was, um, was on display in his poetry. And it was just this, this evolution of a man, uh, of a mind, uh, and a, and a way of seeing the world. So it just, um, he wasn't distracted, I, I'd say. And that's, that's something to be admired. Do you teach him in your uh, classes? In my poetry elective. Yeah. He, he, he comes up again and again. And I remember, yeah, I just remember that, that class very well because reaching students through poetry, I wonder if they're more distracted now or they're more excited about connecting with timeless uh, words, you know, what is it? How has it changed? This is one of my questions for you. Like, how has it changed in the 27 years with kids now, you know, with something like poetry or has it? I, I'm not sure it has changed too much. Um, certainly, I mean, the, the smartphones can be a distraction within the classroom, but, but speaking about the way kids receive poetry, um, the way it, it speaks to them the way it, it inspires them and fires them up. I, I think, I think it's still the same. I, I, I'm, I love when, when I see students really connecting and, and really getting into it, uh, their, their art transforms, you know, when they start the class and by the, by the end of the term, they're writing some incredible stuff, you know? So, um, the, as the who says, the kids are all right. You know, <laughs> that's cool. Actually, yeah. I wonder at Stevenson, did they allow kids to have their phones in the class or not? How do you uh, deal with that? Well, you, it's a, it's a balance because actually they're able to do more and more on the phone that might be class related in terms of looking at their calendars, in terms of utilizing an app that uh, might be uh, relevant to a certain lesson. Uh, we use a, a grammar platform online, for example, that they can they can use from their, their phones. Mm. Uh, but it's sparing. I mean, you, you have to really be on it and tell them, okay, put that away now and let's, let's get, get on to something else. So if someone's sneaking, sneakily texting under the desk, you're like, all right, Bob, no, we're not going to play that. right yeah, now." Yeah. Yeah. It's, and, and you have to be aware of that because it's, it happens. I remember it was in 2000, there was the school really adopted the laptop technology and we were doing spreadsheets and, the school being connected through ethernet connections and mm -hmm. like that being really helpful, you know? And I remember making music during my free period on, it was like we had PCs and on this old program called Fruity Loops, which now FL studio, all the rappers use that, you know? Huh. And, and it was like a, 
yeah, being able to have music classes and technology like education was really useful. You know, do you think Stevens has been kind of been ahead of the curve with technology or like? Um, I I would say um, in some ways I, I I think they they've been ahead, um, and I I would say now they're they're in line with with other schools. I mean, you know, you look at a school like Monta Vista Christian up in Watsonville, they're an iPad school. So every student has one. Um, so I think schools are making inroads, uh, in many different ways. So I don't, I honestly don't know if we're ahead of the curve, but I would say early on, I would say we were. Are you one of the, how many of the old school teachers are still there? Like, let's see if I'm trying to think, is Mr. Smith still there? No, he re- he retired uh, a couple couple years ago. Wow. Yeah, it was a, it's we've had a few retirements in the last couple of years, so all the all the the luminaries and the you know the great lights are have uh, have moved on. Mr. Miller is he still there? No, he's retired too. Wow. And and rest in peace to Dr. Roth. That uh, that was yeah. a shock. Yeah, we're all very sad about that. I saw um your post about that and that's how I found out and Man, you know, I fortunately had seen him, you know, over the years since I graduated and kept in touch with him. But yeah, I remember he, like he really prepared us for college, you know, with Hamlet and all that. Like, yeah, he was a fantastic teacher. I mean, uh, I don't think anyone ever corrected uh, papers better than he did. I mean, uh, he, uh, we'd just shake our heads and go, how, how do you have time to do all that? I mean, he, his, his responses were longer than the essays that were submitted. So, <laughs> yeah. we, so we had, we had, uh, we had our work cut out for us. He, he was a kept us to a high standard. He raised sure. the bar on the marginalia, right? Exactly, exactly. Um, well, so instead of me asking all the teachers, I remember who's still there that you think was there when you started. Is anyone? Uh, well, uh, John Sanuda is. He's although he's he's retiring soon, but he's he's there. Uh, Dale Hinckley, mm. Cole Thompson. Mm. Um, and boy, beyond that, it's it, uh, not too many <laughs> others. Mr. Uh, Hamish Tyler teaching at the the uh, that school in Salinas. Yeah, and I went and did a few workshops with, for his students, and that was cool to see him. That him 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 being in a new context. You know what I mean? Right. And and still being the same same Mr. Tyler. <laughs> right. Right. Yeah. I, I saw him at a football game uh, last year, and it was nice to see him. He's doing a he he his programmer's office. They also do uh they do color commentary for high school football games as well. That's cool. Yeah. Another special thing, which I also realized was very rare, was having a, a thousand watt radio station that they let kids program music on. Like KSPB was huge for me. That was probably mm-hmm. my favorite memories in high school. Like extracurricularly was that, you know, learning, learning how to do that and learning that like if you play the wrong song you're going to be in very big trouble because the FCC, not only is your teacher going to be listening, the FCC is going to come after <laughs> Big <you>. brothers <laughs> listening and watching, right? Yeah, that was, um, man, how is it, the radio station there? Is it still kind of active with the students? Um, it is. Um, I, uh, they're still doing their shows. Um, uh, I haven't listened too much lately, but uh, uh, one of our teachers has a, a, a fun Thursday show Oh, uh, it's a Thursday detention with uh, David Schmickens, who's now our department head of English, and, and he's awesome and funny, and that's a good show. And they always have a theme each week, uh, and so the radio station's going strong. It's 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 incredible. I mean, I, I think if I were a prospective parent with a, a student, I think that would be a big draw for me, just seeing that and and how high tech it is, and 
it reaches a lot of people and and the community loves it because it, it has BBC as well on it. And I remember they sent us to New York for the CMJ radio conferences a few years. Like that was my first exposure to New York being 16 and like in New York, like with my peers, that's special. That's a lot of trust you put in a kid, you know, right, right. not to get in trouble. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> um, and the, and the, I remember Chris Gates and I, who I interviewed also, we had our Friday morning show and that time from seven thirty to eight, knowing that like a good majority of the school was listening, this direct, having like this kind of monoculture moment where that's special, man, being able to have this voice to talk to the whole community and play, you know, the kind of music we played and, um, yeah, I, I look at it fondly because to me, it's like a very 20th century memories of like everyone tuned in to the station. Right. But I guess people, I imagine people still listen, but I also wonder if kids have radios in their dorms. I don't know. Maybe they listen online. No, they're, they're streaming it. Yeah, yeah, that's it. Yeah. yeah. That's the one difference, I guess. Mm-hmm. Sam, I wanted to share, this is a story that is very special. And this is a story of um, A plus teaching. Um I remember you knew I was really into Marilyn Manson and a lot of like industrial music. And and you said to me, hey, have you heard of Rush? And I didn't really know them that well. I knew the name. So one day you come in during homeroom and you just you plop, plop down their new album, Test for Echo, on my desk. You bought it, you know, and you picked it up for me. And you're like, here you go. Check this out. You might like it. And that definitely that album and that whole era changed my life. And I would say that Rush was a huge influence on me becoming a nerdcore rapper. And one of my first songs, I have a, lo- I have a line to say, I still like Rush and Dr. Dre. I still keep bumping NWA, like <laughs> always referencing them. So I wanted to thank you for that and see if you remember buying that CD from me. Yeah, that I, I do remember. You know, I, I, I think, you know, if, if teaching has subversive moments, maybe that was one of them where I'm, I will, I will change this, this young mind here now. <laughs> but uh, no, I just, I really, you know, you, you obviously loved music and um, I, I thought, Hey, you know, check it out. What do you, you know, see what you see, what you think. And uh, happily it turned out, turned out to be a great, ended up being an incredible experience with the concert. I don't know if you're going to mention that too. Yeah. We, they played San Jose on their tour and we, you, um, me and my dad went and you'd made this mixtape of like catching us up on everything pre test for echo and you made like liner notes about or notes about which album and that was really cool because it was before spotify right and before napster it was right. this ability to you this great overview of someone who really knew the band intimately both as a musician and as a writer getting to write up with you and listen to their old songs and then loving that tape like wearing that tape out <laughs> because it was so cool how yeah, that band is so diverse and so their musical chops and lyrical chops were so sensitive and so smart. And I remember saying, it's so different from from the other music I listen to. You can actually hear the words, what they mean. Right. You, I remember you thought that was funny. Yeah. Well, it, it's nice when you can actually understand and hear what they're they're saying. But yeah, so we went up there uh, to that concert. Uh, it was the Test for Echo tour, which was 1996. And we were lucky because... Um, after that, um, the drummer Neil Pert had had a, a series of tragic events happen to him, and they it was uh, doubtful whether they were even going to play again. Uh, and it was six years before they they came back and actually played. And a uh, uh, really cool story is I I was in uh, I was in Connecticut uh, doing some graduate work, and and their first show back after their their six year hiatus was in Hartford, uh, Connecticut in two thousand two. 
and that was the paper trails tour yeah so that was that was amazing and you went and i went Heck and yeah. it was incredible yeah they, yeah vapor trails was their big comeback record i guess it was was it i mean the, after test freco the ne next one they did was vapor trails yeah yeah they didn't do anything for six years um uh getty lee released uh, the bass player released his own solo album and um but pert sort of came out of his you know that that tailspin of, of the life events that happened to him and they made a, a great album they they remastered it um several years later um for what I, I'm not sure what reasons they they wanted, but they didn't they didn't like the recording ultimately, so they went back and re-engineered it. And then it was Snakes and Arrows. Was that the next? Yeah, one? Snakes and Arrows, um, which which was okay. You know, it was good. It was different. Um, but I think Vapor Trails for me was kind of like their last really really a uh, great album. What were you studying in Connecticut for grad school? Uh, I was doing a, a, a master's in humanities. Cool. Yeah, and I did it over four summers. Wow, man, I, didn't, I never knew that. Yeah. What was, was that? Yukon or? Uh, it was a uh, Wesleyan. Oh wow. Yeah, That's in Middletown. Awesome. Yeah. So you had to balance. Wow. So you knew your summers would be booked for four summers. Yeah, but it was great because I yeah. I drive across the country and back, and what a great way to see the the country is, you know, just drive. Oh, you drove there? Yeah, a couple times I drove, uh, and one time I went eighty. And then 70 back another time I went 40 and then 80 back. So it's great to really see the rest of the country. That's awesome. Yeah. I didn't know that. I didn't know that. And that's, we were talking earlier, Connecticut's where my wife is from. So I've gotten to know um, Hartford pretty well. I'm going there for Christmas. So I'll say hi for you. Yeah, thank you. Yeah. <laughs> um, when people ask me my favorite Rush album, I always say Test for Echo because I had, a, I remember one of the stories was there. I, I had an online <laughs> girlfriend who lived in San Diego when I was like 14. This girl, I talk on AIM. <laughs> oh. And they had a song, Virtuality. about It was a song about people meeting online. Right, and right. that was so early to do a song about online relationships. 96? Come yeah. on, Rush, that's awesome, right? Yeah, they were always ahead of, of the curve in, in a lot of ways, you know. So not a, not a surprise there that they, they uh, had that song. And I... It is it is a great album. I mean, the, the whole '90s for them was was a sort of a renaissance. They had these quirky albums in the '80s, kind of up and down, but they really reestablished their their sound uh, in the '90s with Counterparts and then Test for Echo. Kind of subtraction of the synths, right? He kind of yeah yeah. They went back to kind of that heavy uh, guitar sound and kind of uh, withdrew from the the keyboards a little bit. What do you think of uh, Roll the Bones? You know, it's been it's an album that's generally panned, but I like it a lot. I mean, I, I, I like everything they do, so yeah, I'm, I'm an easy sell. But, um, but uh, yeah, I think it's certainly not one of their best, but I, I liked it. The uh, that they Roll the Bones has this rapping skeleton verse, right? Right. Remember right. They, they had a CGI, and I thought that was so cool. And another thing I remember about the concert was we had our earplugs. You were going hard without earplugs, just rocking out. I was like, man, Sam loves this band so much. He's yeah. not going to wear earplugs. And I've, as I've gotten older, when I love a band, I'm not trying to wear earplugs, you know? That's why I can't hear now, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, you, you lose some stuff with the, I mean, even in rehearsing, you know, it's, it's sometimes it's a good thing to, to have those, but, but I would always just have one ear with, with an earplug and one ear without. There you, you know. go. When I have a, when I play with a drummer, I try to wear them. I used to, I, and like on festival tours, like I played it with in-ear monitors, you know, mm -hmm. but if it's a smaller club, like I, I don't know. Yeah. I, when I'm 
no drummer. I've more and more taken them out, and maybe that's because my hearing is gone, and I don't know. But I, 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 yeah, that's a. It's tough because they they often want you near them, you know. Just and that's that's a good thing, but it's also you're you're getting you're getting these specific sounds and and uh, tones that that are really hitting your ears in a harsh way sometimes. And the snare is what, or the, the crashes really can like cause the damage. Yeah, it's the, it's the crashes for sure. And then I remember when in middle school also, you know, you kind of, you showed your students that you cared and you, I remember you, well, for one of the book reports, uh, we got to choose one and, and you recommended an anthem by Ayn Rand because 2112 was kind of inspired by that book. Is right. that right? That's correct. Yeah. Did I say your name right? Ayn? Uh, Ayn, Ayn. Ayn Rand. Yeah. And, and reading that and, and. The idea of like a, a rock opera based on a, a book was really inspired me. The literary rap stuff I do, you know, that you can mm -hmm. this transmedia idea that you can take a take a piece of literature and turn it into a musical. And you know, I guess um, right. Neil Pert took some liberties with the story, but it's basically the same story. It's very me. very similar. Yeah, it, uh, the only difference in twenty one twelve is the the guy finds a guitar. And that's the instead of like a light bulb, he finds he finds this uh, guitar to play on. Yeah. Yeah. Did you see? Have you ever read Ready Player One? Do you know that book? I've heard of it, but I've not read it. They have a whole chapter. It's so this guy has to. Um, it's in the future dystopia, mm -hmm. and he has to kind of save the save the world by finding this guy's treasure, and he goes on this treasure hunt. But anyway, there's a whole section based on twenty one twelve. Oh wow! Where where it's so great because it's so true to the album, and he has to get the guitar and play the note for note and. If I didn't know that album, I wouldn't have really loved that chapter so much. But in the, the movie they recently did, they they omitted all that, which huh. surprised me. But I thought, you know, was Rush super mainstream? Do you think like back in the eighties and stuff? Um, they became mainstream with uh, um, an album called Moving Pictures, uh, which has Limelight on it and Tom Sawyer and Red Barchetta, and right around that point they were. And then, uh, and then the next album after that, um, they had a hit off of that called New World Man, which was an afterthought. They weren't even going to put that on the, the album, and it turned into a big hit. But um, So yeah, there was a period probably between like 1979 and 84 where they were, they were pretty big. What was your exposure to them, personally? Um, well, you know, I just, I mean, I just started listening to them. I mean, you know, any kind of classic rock of that time you know whether it was journey or a rush or a band called triumph or, you know before heavy metal got really big it was sort of those those bands kansas was another these sort of progressive rock bands and that's just sort of how i got into it but then also the fact that neil pert the lyricist is so well read mm. he, he could teach english i mean every <laughs> he he comes up with these references and you're like how does he know this he's he must have gone to you know gotten a degree in english uh i don't know if he has or not but he's incredibly well read and so there's so many literary references and allusions that that it sort of satisfies the soul to be listening to great music and and uh being reminded of these literary uh characters and, and such like um spear of the radio that's a great uh, metaphor and also limelight i remember you explaining like that's what fame feels like right the gilded cage of yeah of of fame you know and how how Neil Peart, I remember seeing the Rush documentary. He spent a lot. He spends a lot of time, or spent a lot of time, writing and not wanting to do the meet and greets with the fans, just because he 
he didn't want that. It's kind of more of a shy guy, I guess. Very much. It's always Getty and Alex were the ones who were always taking all the interviews and meeting the people. And, and he was sort of the shy professor in the background who didn't want to have anything to do with, with all that stuff. And which is fine. No, it worked. It worked fine. I mean, right. look at their discography. <laughs> right. They were great. Um, Okay, so Sam, you've written how many poetry books have you released? Uh, I would, I think I'm at six now. That's a lot. Yeah. Um, and then I remember you did a translation of the was the Battle of Maldun, the the Battle of Maldun, yeah, Maldun, yeah, which was a uh, an Anglo-Saxon uh, poem from uh, the the battle was in 991, uh, and the poem was a was written sometime after it, a few years after, and it's uh it's sort of. You know, people know about Beowulf and and, and that, but uh, this is a lesser known poem. Uh, but I, I was interested in uh, translating, and so I took a year and a half um, to work on that project. Um, and uh, it was right after linguistics was one of was my graduate degree, and so I was really interested in in, uh, in translating and language mm. at that time. So I took a year and a half um, and and uh, came out with a with a translation of it. It's pretty cool. And has anyone else translated it since? Um, I, oh, it's, yeah, it's been translated uh, time and time again. Um, I don't know who, who's done it recently. Um, but I went, I went back and revisited it um, about, I think I want to say about eight or nine years ago and, and kind of redid it and made, made sure kind of spruced some things up here and there. Wow. But uh, yeah. So I'm, I'm proud of that because I, it was a, I took a long time with it. What are, what were some of the um, challenges of translating something so old and what was like particularly fun about that? Um, well, it's like working on a puzzle and trying to put uh, the, the right words together, but you know, there are cultural connotations to, to the words in Anglo-Saxon that, that are lost. There's the musicality of the lines of the words that, that you have to try and, or you attempt to, um, restore in in a modern translation um there are words like for example in anglo-saxon there's there's several words for sword um and so and what what they would do is they would have alliteration in in these two lines there would be a line break between uh in the in the middle of the line there would be a line break and there would be alliteration in the first part that would alliterate to the second part of the line so you know, the challenges like that. So not only do I, I, I have to find a word that matches this, I have to try and see if I can come up with the sound quality as well. So um, if there was a, a G alliteration in that line, I sometimes have to change it to another consonant because that's all I could do. So that was a challenge, but that was the fun of it. And make it go this, go through the entire line. So you have to then be creative. I guess there's a creative element, right? Right. And, and um, that's cool, man. That's right. really cool. So, yeah, <laughs> yeah. And so the tone, uh, you know, you, you would hear the you would hear the rising tone of of what was being said in a particular line, um, or or it would become more muted, and then that's where the creativity comes in because you you have to try and transpose that into into modern English. Do you still teach it as part of your curriculum? Um, I don't. I, I don't now. Um, it's the sophomore year is where they, they do British literature mm. and they do the, some of the old poems. Um, and I teach freshmen and seniors, so I don't, I don't get a chance to. So what are the some of the freshman staple books that you'd still teach? 
Um, we do of Mice and Men. Um, we do The Odyssey and The Tempest. Those are sort of our core books. And then um, I also do The Alchemist, Flowers for Algernon, um, and uh, The Old Man in the Sea. Uh, so those are the, the, the basically what I do in the freshman year. So they give you, like, you get to choose about half of them? Yeah, we have yeah. to do the core books so that everyone's doing the same thing. And then we are allowed to pick our own after that. Speaking of the alchemists, so I, I had a friend who, who would appreciate that book too. And you know the part where there's like the tea shop and he yeah. helps that man get his business back? Right. So every year when I used to play this festival called South by Southwest in, in Austin, um, I, it, I always saw that and I describe it as my tea shop because I had to make sure my set was good. I had new material. I was collaborating with other artists there. And that um, if it were, yeah, that if I were sloppy that year, it wasn't going to be a good musical year. And that I always thought of that in terms of that with that book, you know? And so that was like your workshop. Yeah. My workshop yeah. where you could prove that I love how he comes in there and just cleans up and shows, no, if you, if you care and you're invested and you can change the world through that alchemy. You know, and that's right. Yeah. I, I bet that book has a special meaning to you as a creative man, too. It's it's beautiful. I mean, yeah. it, it's uh, I love the story, uh, the parable about uh, the boy who who uh, goes to see a king and the king tells him, you know, go go and see my palace and, and all the wonders in it. And by the way, carry this this cup of oil with you as you go. And he goes and he goes around and uh, he comes back to the king and the king says, well, where's my oil? And and he said, well, you, you told me to look at all the, all the beauty of the, the palace. I wasn't paying attention to the oil. And he says, you know, come on, go, go do this again. And so, mm. and, uh, and so he goes out again, he comes back and the oil's there. And the king said, well, what, what did you see? And he said, well, I didn't see anything because I was paying attention to, to the oil. Uh, and the king's message to him was, you know, you uh, see the beauty and the wonders, but, but pay attention to the details as well. So that, wow. that's the workshop, right? You know, you're paying... You're you're doing what you love and you're doing what's beautiful, but you know you have to also pay attention to uh, and mind mind the details uh, of of what you're doing and the craft of it. That's like a beautiful example for anyone, and I'm sure a lot of listeners to the podcast are creative people who also are balancing it with the. You can't just sit around and paint all day. I mean, some people can, but that is very rare, and that sometimes makes your art kind of uninformed unless you're able to pay attention to the details and, and live in the real world and use that as a conduit to express. I guess that, that feel that seems like a metaphor that might be appropriate there. Right. Too. And the idea too, for example, in, in music, when you're doing finger exercises, uh, like you, they seem to be very boring and, and rote. Uh, but you, if you pay attention to them, uh, they, they come back in myriad ways when you're playing and, uh, and by being attentive to those, those, seemingly boring things they uh they help create the art later so that is cool or they give and they give the art more strength and and yeah right the craft that's cool um okay so what what do you love about teaching now like what keeps you going for 27 years um well i i think they're they're let's be honest is with with any job i mean there are days where you you have tough days where you're like oh well this this went terrible. Yeah. What am I doing here? You know, yeah. and other days where you you feel so good about having uh, helped someone see uh, a different way of of thinking about a a topic or a, an idea 
Um, and those are, those are very rewarding days for me. Um, when there's that moment of illumination where the light bulb goes on. Um, and so that's, that's what keeps me going. And the, and the kids are just, they're awesome. They're just great, great people to be around because they're not, at least not as of yet, they're not kind of uh, uh, sullen or, or, you know, sad about the world and depressed, to, you know, by, by what's happening and, and things, you know, they haven't lived quite long enough uh, to, to get pessimistic. So there's a lot of optimism still in the classroom. Yeah. And as a, as a literary teacher, that is teaching these metaphors and like these life lessons, which I guess every subject has, but literature and English specifically is teaching them hacks that can help them like live a joyful, informed life and wondering if they'll, you know, in, in college and some of them might not end up majoring in the humanities. So it's like impactful because it's your, your chance, right. To really make that, that mark. Right. <laughs> it's, it's always funny when I, uh, I have a student who is so wonderful, brilliant, you know, Oh, they're going to, they're going to be a great English person, you know? And then they, they come back years later. Oh, I'm a doctor now. I, I went to medical school. And he's like, what? <laughs> you know, but that's, that's great. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm always grateful to hear that. Or, yeah, I'm happy for them, but I'm always like, Oh, I thought you were going to, I thought you were going to go to the humanities, you know? And well, yeah, being, being able to become good writers is like a, such a skill. Right. That's like a really important skill. Yeah. What do you teach seniors? What's in there? So we have a course uh, called border crossings and not, not the border wall crossing and all that stuff. Uh, but sort of, um, you know, crossing um, boundaries, uh, boundaries of, of thought, boundaries of culture and, and things like that. So, uh, it's it's a world literature type of course mm. uh, where we we let the students kind of experience um, a country or a culture outside of their their box. So that's what we're doing. So we and it, we do a lot of uh, essays. Um, you use the Siegel Reader uh, for that. Um, we just read uh, When the Emperor Was Divine, which is a story about the Japanese internment uh, camps of World War II. Uh, we'll be doing the power of one when, when we get back by mm. Bryce Courtney, which is a fantastic book. So, uh, and then also, uh, we cross borders and genre. We we're doing Watchmen in, in the spring graphic novel, which is really cool. Which Megaran and I, we have a song about that on our new album where we have all our nerdcore friends do the different characters. Oh, really? So I'll send, I'll send, we, Megaran and I just did an album. It's called the Dewey Decibel System <laughs> and it's all books you know and and that's the one graphic novel we did so i'll, I'll give you the download link i love it yeah <laughs> yeah, yeah i've been cool. i've been threatening to go uh, as rorschach for halloween <laughs> i keep missing the chance to order the the costume about, <laughs> yeah did you see the movie yeah i did I, it's 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 pretty awesome i love i love the uh long version where they did the animated pirate cartoon in there i don't know if you ever seen this like oh, a four hour that. version oh, and, wow. and and like an hour of it is yeah, I forget what it's the tales of the black freighter. Yeah, the tales of black freighter and how that is like a metaphor for the for the story is happening. It's pretty cool, man. If you right. get a chance to see the full version, I recommend it. It's yeah. long though, but it's great. Yeah, isn't that just a, a mind blowing, incredible uh, book? It's, I mean, it's such a feast for the eyes. I mean, the, the panels and how everything uh, connects, uh, and everything, nothing's left to chance in that. It's, it's fantastic. And isn't it symmetrical in a way, the layout? Like I remember hearing that, like if you open in the middle and then flip back, 
it, the panel layout is a mirror. Yeah. 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 That's yeah. awesome. And they're, and they, uh, and it's always in, in triptychs and threes and, and it's uh it's an amazing, amazing piece of work. That's cool. Yeah. That's progressive that you're teaching. That. Yeah. <laughs> um, where do you, do you feel like you'll always want to teach till you retire or do you ever, is there other career paths you think about? Um, I think I'll, I, I think I'll go out on a, on, on the horse of teaching. Yeah. I think, think, think I'll be doing that for, uh, for the rest of the time. Um, but I, you know, I'll still, I'll still write and play music, uh, even after, you know, so that's, that's always, that's always on the back burner as well. Do the do other teachers, like, do you find that they look up to you and ask you questions? Cause they know you've been, you now you're one of the Jedi there. <laughs> <laughs> one of the Jedi. Yeah. <laughs> Help you. I will. Uh, yeah, I, I mean, you know, I think some of the younger teachers, um, um, you know, I get questions from them from time to time. Um, you know, the thing that's really wild, and this is a crazy, crazy thing, but the reason I got the job at Stevenson was because this woman went on maternity leave um, to have to give birth to her daughter, who is now teaching at the high school at Stevenson. Wow. Yeah, so when she first arrived i said you know you're the reason i'm i'm here and she's she's like what are you talking about and i'm like well it's a long story <laughs> that's a full very full circle yeah, yeah. <laughs> um how big how many students high school students are there is it still like 600 uh it's 500 500 yeah i remember that small high school being cool because you get to really know everyone and i'll know all the teachers well and the teacher student yeah. ratio is special i think that's another big draw i mean our our classroom sizes are you know, I have 11, 12 kids in my class and that's, that's priceless. I mean, it's, it's so important. I think that's part of a, a great, a great sell for schools, uh, the student teacher ratio. Is there been more international students? Is that those demographics changed? Yeah. Um, when, uh, when 2008 came and the financial crisis happened, uh, one of the strategies for Stevenson was to admit more international students because financially it, it was helpful for them to do that. But um, the new president, one of his his aims is to sort of, uh, sort of maybe limit that that a little bit more and bring back more of the domestic um, students in that market. And it's still like half and half kids who live on campus and they. Sleep. Um, it's more boarding now. I'd say it's oh. a, it's about like, say three twenty five, and then one seventy five. Wow. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. So that's changed, I, I think. It has, yeah. It used to be a lot more evenly uh, placed. Do they build more dorms then? Or, yeah, there's a yeah. there's a new building called the Barrows Building that's probably about three, well, that's probably five years old now at this point. So yeah, they did build a little bit more. Going on campus, when I go back, when I've gone back to visit, it really feels like, like a small liberal arts college. So, you know, it's got a more of a college vibe, and I guess because people live on campus, the... I don't know. It's, yeah, I agree with you. It, yeah. it, it definitely has that feeling. And I think part of that is um, Kevin Hicks's vision. He's the uh, new president of the school. Or he's, he, this is his fourth year. And I, I think he really brings that that feeling. I mean, he is he is a, a college professor himself. And he's so you, you get that feeling. One last story I want to tell. When I remember when we were graduating middle school, we were lucky because we had your middle school and then you started teaching the high school. So I got to see you a lot. Right. In middle, the middle school graduation, I remember you said to us, you said, uh, no, do what you know you have to do. That's what you said to us during the line when we were leaving. And that's kind of makes me feel kind of emotional thinking about that because 
I went off and <laughs> did made rap music and did my my creative stuff, which was so inspired by the time and love you showed me. And I wonder now, like you probably at this point, so many people you've taught have become adults and you follow them and, you know, was there any advice that someone maybe gave you like that as a kid that stuck with you, you know, Mr. This Mr. Salerno is to you in your life. Um, you know, I, 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 it's probably my, my mom was, was like my biggest influence in terms of, of how I see the world. And, and, you know, she, she embraced whatever I wanted to do and she encouraged me, um, to, to follow what I felt that I needed to do. And so I think, you know, I, I think of, of her a lot, you know, obviously, and, uh, think of her lessons to me, uh, and that she, she embraced the idea of something that I felt strongly about and that I, that I wanted to do. There was never any, there's never any poo-pooing of, oh, no, no, you don't want to do that or you can't do that. Um, and I think that's the important thing is, you know, that, that what I've tried to convey to, to students that, you know, uh, do, do what it is you, you feel you need to do. Um, and I, I think that's, um, I, I'm sure they hear that from other corners as well, but, um, I think that's, that's the, the number one goal is to give them a, a sense of space, give them a, a sense that, um, that they have room to do what it is that they want to do and that, uh, they shouldn't be, uh, discouraged. You know, so that's, I think, I think my mom was the one who, who brought that out in me and I try and bring out in others. That's pretty amazing, man. Yeah. And so, yeah, I'm, I'm, I was sorry to hear about that, about your loss. How are you doing now? Oh, you know, I'm doing better. I mean, yeah. it's, you know, it's part of the life process, but it is transformative because there is the life that you live with your parents and the life that you live after. And so I'm now navigating those waters. Um, mm. um, so it's just a strange time, you know, uh, uh, but so many, you know, there's so many blessings that, that, um, I, you know, you, you take the, the heartache of it with, with all the good that, that was there and that, uh, the time that you had, uh, with her and, and, and with your parents. So, um, it's just, a, it's just trying to figure out a new way of, of, of seeing the world and a new way of, of moving through it that you haven't done before. And the fact that you've passed that on, right? The love and the support she gave you, you've passed on to thousands of people now, which is really the, her living legacy, the inspiration she gave you and the people you've inspired. Do you think about that? Um, I, you know, I, I think I'll probably think about that when I'm done maybe teaching, uh, I'll consider it, but, um, it's a, it's when, for example, when a carpenter builds something, you know, it's, there's that feeling of joy and love, uh, and, and knowing that you can always come back and see it and like, ah, I did that there with teaching. You don't really have that. You, you, you hope that you've done well, mm. um, but you don't always see what the results are. And so, you know, sitting here with you is like, oh my God, this is really cool. You know, <laughs> this is a chance to kind of revisit something that, uh, something that was done uh, years ago uh, and things that you don't always remember, you know, for like what you've, the, the anecdotes that you 
talked about today. I'm like, oh, wow, I don't even remember that particular thing. But it's it's cool to know that it's it's flowered in good ways. That's cool, man. Yeah. Well, your in- influence, inspiration I, has always been very important to me. And it's really cool to, for me to talk about this and keep have a friendship with you and, you know, to kind of go down memory lane. You do poetry readings. You write books. I, I was wondering... I'm not trying to put you on the spot, but if would you mind like reading a poem? All right, I'll I'll read this uh, poem called Childhood, and since it's kind of topical, um, okay. And this is Childhood. The center is the eye moving, as if it were a crab cartwheeling along the bearing seafloor of the mind, kaleidoscoping out of control. The way you saw the colors of the sun when you were young, the way you danced in slow motion an astronaut on a spacewalk tethered by the strings of the blue Danube. You remember your bare feet buried in the tall summer grass of morning where the blades caressed the dew between your toes. The eye was a spiraling slide downward into the exploding red sunshine of childhood, even as your limbs extended outward with open fingers tracing the cotton-candied clouds of discovery, those ships you boarded gliding by toward the unbounded, unmeasured, and unrehearsed moments of the world. That's a great poem. Thank you. Kerouac talks in one of his first books, Dr. Sachs. He has this story about this kid who's, he ends talking about this kid who's reading in bed and how the world is fresh like that. And mm-hmm. it may, and that's, and the talking about the dew between the, the toes reminds me of that, uh. that he says, you'll never have a, a literary experience like this again. Right. And sometimes maybe it's better when you're a kid, you don't realize how special it is because then you're more in the moment, you know. Right. Oh yeah. Childhood. Right. It's just being. You know, it's the eternal now. You're you're not you're not focused on anything but the joy of that particular moment, whether it's dancing or singing or you know running around on the beach. Uh, they're the purest moments uh, that that we have in our life. We're going to see Rush with the English teacher and your dad. <laughs> yeah, that was pretty cool too. Um. Well, you are, well, I'll post this before your reading, but do you want to talk about your February reading? Yeah, um, I'll be reading uh, February 10th uh, in Monterey at the Old Capital Books. Um, I haven't done a reading in a while, so I've got some new material. Um, I'm working on a chat book that uh, hopefully uh, it's going to be called Holding Spaces, um, and that will hopefully be out sometime in the new year. And uh, I will, I'll be hanging out with your dad. He's hosting and that'll be fun. It makes me, it warms my heart to know that there are these poets who, who have a community here and that, you know, that's, that's, that's special. That's pretty awesome. Yeah. There are a lot of wonderful writers around in the area and in Santa Cruz as well. Where do you, do you have a place you post your stuff? Like do you have a website? I do. Um, it's www.samuelsalernopoetry.com. Um, it's under maintenance right now, but it'll it'll be back up in the next couple of weeks. So. And you're on Facebook. Are you on Twitter too, or no? I'm not. Uh, you know, I was uh, when I was listening to your you talk to your dad last week, and he had he has everything, and I was like, <laughs> oh my god, I've got nothing here. No, I don't do Twitter, but I'm definitely on Facebook. Uh, so. That's cool, Sam Salerno. So you, it's nice to to focus your energy. That's like a, that's good. You're not too all over the place because it ch- all changes so quickly. I guess. Yeah, I I uh, I'm trying to keep it low key. I guess. Do you so with with social media and stuff? I'm sure you get friend requests from current students. Like, 
I'm friends with you on Facebook, but like, how do you, oh man, that must be crazy, right? Like, oh no, I don't, we don't, yeah, I don't do, I don't accept current students, you know, I, that's uh, kind of a school policy anyway. Yeah. So, I mean, it's just the right thing. It's, it's the right thing, you know, it's, it's fine if they're adults and, you know, they're, but now it's, it'd be kind of weird to, to have a friend who's currently there. Cause then they student. know your whole life through Facebook, right? Yeah. Well, yeah. And, and I mean, yeah, it'd just be awkward. So I'm lucky to be a part of the alumni Sam Salerno friend list. Right, thank you. Yeah, no, no, I'm lucky to have you as a friend. So, well, thank you, buddy. I appreciate your time. This is, this has been a really special episode. Thank you, Andrew. This has been great. And be sure to if you're in the California Central Coast area, be sure to go see Sam's reading because he's great. All right, peace. Bye. To tell you the story of boy born into the world with love as his only toy. Then one day a light is shone from above.
Heck yeah. Sam Salerno. Go check out his poetry reading Sunday at Old Capital Books. He's killing it. Um, next week, we have my man, Worm Quartet, a.k.a. Timothy Christ, Shoebox. He's on my Robot Kills album. He, we did a cover of Adam and His Package's Metric song, and Shoebox did all the music, and I just kind of rapped over his track. But anyway, he's a hilarious artist who's put out a lot of great music, very prolific, very talented, awesome guy. He's He lives near Rochester, so when I play Rochester, I try to have him on the show, and we perform together, and uh, yeah. My, my one of my favorite people in the world we're working on some educational songs we'll get into that though next week uh, thank you all for listening though uh this has been great and yeah this is this is a special episode and oh one other thing i want to talk about i'm launching on youtube is these throwback videos where i'm doing like mc lars remembers dot 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 in the year because my mom archived all these old ha- family videos so that's going to be on the youtube channel so if you're not subscribed mclars.tv will take you right to the YouTube channel where you can peep that flavor. Dewey Decibel coming May. UK tour dates are up. Starts the end of March. NerdcoreTour.com doing a May US tour. Stay tuned for that. Big announcements. Joyful smiles. I love you guys. This is the MC Lars Podcast. Have a great week, everyone. See you soon. Oh, and go check out Sam's reading if you're in California. Bye.